0: In Greece, in Spain, or Ireland, in England, or Fiji. We all of us are workers, united we must stand Until the wealthy bludgers have been driven from our land.
1: Welcome to Creatures of the Industry, an ongoing series of oral history interviews with the people who made the building and construction industry in Melbourne and regional Victoria since the 1960s. These podcasts are sponsored by the Concrete we'll Gang, the box, in cooperation the box, the with Community box Radio 3CR. And welcome to Creatures of the Industry, Nick Moore, Art2. Hope you
0: enjoy. It'll hold your head up high, it's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky. We've got a fighting history and we never will be cowed. Our labour is an aim to make the man feel proud.
1: listening to Creatures of the Industry, we're talking to Nick Moore, and we're basically covering a very long period of time in the industry. Nick was in from, uh, let's say, the early 60s all the way through, maybe even the 50s. No, well, early 60s, probably.
2: <laughs> no, no, I started in 1953. Oh, right there, I stand correction. Right. Uh I mean, I, I'm I'm an old man now, mate, uh, but but it wasn't in the in in the mainstream. Yeah, yeah. Top end.
1: So here we are, probably nearly thirty years into your time in the industry. Mid '80s, where what were you doing in the mid '80s, and where do you think it was all going at that time?
2: Well, I I claim. Uh, to myself, I don't not care whether anyone knows or not. It's of no interest to me, uh, merit and awards and all that. In fact, I, I can tell you, I knocked back the Order of Australia at one stage, and I'll leave that there, but that is true, and because that sort of thing doesn't bother me at all. But I had, as mentioned earlier, I hadn't been very happy about asbestos at the Maroondah Hospital. But now, Ralph, I'm at the Trades Hall and I am in a position, right, where I can actually achieve things. I've got a direct avenue through to the Department of Labor and Industry. So along with other people, I don't claim all the credit because it'd be a folly, but we channelled all the information we had, all the activity. We had one... Person who was a hygienist, and I mentioned one before. There was about four or five people, and Boydie wasn't one.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Now Boydie set up an agreement with the contractors and that, and did some excellent work and all that. But this is this is different. We're talking about legislation. At that time, there was people cutting water pipe on the big jobs. Uh, you know, civil stuff as well, with chainsaws. And I spoke to the Minister of the Day, uh, uh,
1: Stephen Crabb. <gasps> Shock, horror. I've just given Nick the uh, sign of uh, the cross because uh, basically you, some of us would like to put a... Uh, Stakes straight through his heart like a vampire. But never mind, you continue your story.
2: No, no, but uh, I wasn't particularly... Uh, oh, I knew the man, but uh, we were trying to achieve something. I was, anyway. And what we were able to achieve, this little group, was that we had asbestos banned.
1: Now, who are the people involved in that sort of well, activity? My
2: closest ally there was a person called Pat Young. Yep. Uh, next to the Pat there was uh, Bill Davis, mm-hmm. Ray winstanley Stanley. Uh, there's one more and I don't want to leave me out. The hygienists? Uh, uh, Ray, Ray, um, Pat Young, myself. There's one more and I, it'll come to me. And we... We were able to convince the government and, of course, the builders. I had one chap at the state bank down in the city. When I said to him, asbestos uh, would kill you, he said, I've been doing this all my life, mate, and look at that. He said, I'm as strong as a horse. And I found out that he had actually died six months later. Right? Right. And they just didn't get it. And those that did... Now, it's been out in the, in, in the open for a long time, the, the uh, dangers of asbestos. And, of course, being such a enormous insulator against fire, no-one wanted to, to, to stop using it. But that, to me, that was... I kept at that everything. When I was at the trade hall, any asbestos job... And I set up a little uh, agreement with the employers too that if they were looking for government work, they would have to sign my agreement yeah. or they didn't get it. And if they breached my agreement, they'd be ch- taken off the list. Right? Now, to me, that I, I really felt great about that because now we, we're, able to, we're able to dictate, no question, and rightfully, in the interests of our members that did not put at risk of getting mesothelioma and asbestosis and all that. Terrible, terrible material. And this was, of course, was the material that uh, what Hancock said was uh, people had to die for if we were to progress.
1: Lang was a very generous man. He said people have to die in the interest of progress. It's not me. At what point do you reckon that was the actual turning point in uh, the campaign against asbestos in the industry? It had gone on for a long time. There had been a lot of arguments. A lot of people had been involved in asbestos removal and they were getting uh, asbestos-related diseases. I mean, you can think of uh, quite a few people. I'll just mention Tony Medina was a person who worked in the industry in asbestos removal and who undertook a lot of good work on behalf of the BWIU and later the CMEU. But he, in the the end, died of uh, asbestos-related disease.
2: Very sad. You know, really terrible thing to happen. But I think there was one point that, to me, highlighted... Brought it to the attention of the rest of the industry on site and that was, was it Collins Wales building? Collins Wales. Yep. In Collins Street. Yeah. I think it was that one. Or was it the State Bank? Anyway. Collins Wales I suspect is. Harold Wilkes. I think of it was Harold, <laughs> but there was there was a spillage of this material, yeah. and when they measured the uh, fibres in the air, instead of it being two at the time, which was illegal, it was eighteen, and that was the, that was when they stopped using it on major sites, and that was my old mate Raywin Stanley.
1: Yeah. Well, there are in fact. Not just spraying the pipes, they were actually spraying all the uh, area around the pipes as well. There it was everywhere. It was
2: everywhere. And I mean and, and um, the, the old stock exchange, a few doors up, it was everywhere. sprayed everywhere. The building down in King Street, where the octagonal building on the corner there of King Street and Collins, they, the health department were on the top floor. And I got thrust into the health department for a short time as industrial officer, and I thought the building industry was bad. <laughs> but when I got here, it was war, absolute war. But while I was there... An electrician came in and he took a tile out of the ceiling. And I looked up. And the other side of the top slab, the roof, was sprayed with asbestos. So I said, I, st- I stopped the meeting. I said, right, stop, stop, stop. I said, and he asked the electrician to put, come down and put the tile back and we are all getting out of here and we're not going back until this, you have to find somewhere else to, to operate. And the minister, what was his name? I can't remember now.
1: He was a, He said, what? I said, let me give you a couple of names. The ministers for Health in the 1980s was uh, David White. David
2: White. Said, he said, What? Well, I said, I'm sorry, David, but uh, no-one's no one's working in this office from this time on until you get rid of that. I said, we're probably just sprinkling down now. Mm. So there, there was a, a complete sort of lackadaisical approach to anything you didn't see. You ever notice that? Right, COVID-19, to some people, is just a plot... Yeah. <laughs>
0: Right, but if you could see it
2: eating you, or the fact you do it. No, that was, I, I was uh, pretty happy about the way that I had kept up the argument with others mm. to get rid of asbestos, mm. and I reckon we saved a few lives in this industry.
1: Well, we reflected a little bit earlier about how much it was sprayed around. It was a normal practice to spray asbestos onto the walls, the, the reinforced concrete walling and and floors to, in fact, uh, insulate. And steel beams. Yeah, it's just normal. Yeah. Fact, I can remember uh, out at Swinburne Tech when some of us went and did our scaffold courses back in the 70s. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the student cafeteria, in fact, had asbestos-based... Uh, Render, put all over the roof, and as it deteriorated, it dropped down onto the students having their lunch. Having a cup of coffee, what it was, an extraordinary circumstance.
2: Well, I can tell you,
1: you. You don't get that these days.
2: No, yeah, I'll tell you a quick one. Oliver Davy in Port Melbourne, glass merchants, right? Uh, I got a call from a concerned person, uh, so I took myself down there. They had. A gantry crane that had been painted, and for some reason they'd sprayed all of it with limpid fibre, <laughs> so it didn't adhere to the painted steel. And every time they pressed the button, you could see this stuff coming down, asbestos. And they, I spoke to them and I said, "Well, you'll have to stop working in here. You're, you know, risking the health of the, all the people." And I said, oh, we wouldn't be able to do that if we'd have to shut it down. Well, I said, that's what you've got to do. And this bloke, a nice enough fellow, he said, "But well, you can't do that. He said, he said, I could lose my job. I said, which do you think would be more important to lose your job or your life? Well, how long have you lived worked here? He said, 15 years. I said, that's about the time it takes for asbestos to affect your lungs. So that's what the situation... I'm sorry to say that to you, my friend, but you cannot work in these circumstances. So they did shut it down
1: and they moved to uh, Dandenong. Now, an old uh, colleague of yours would be Pat Preston. Yeah. And Pat took up the fight uh, as health and safety officer for the CFMEU. And I would say... Given the discussion we had on a previous podcast with Pat, the fight went on for another 15 years to even get to what was considered to be a reasonable standard in terms of removal. It wasn't getting used, though there was some product coming into the country um, which came from Asia and was in invariably uh, contaminated with asbestos. But in terms of the mass use of asbestos-based product, by the early 90s, it had stopped, but the removal industry continued. And Pat spent a lot of time in uh, making sure that the removal was done safely, was done properly. But... uh, as little time ago as a few years at the Iron Hospital, there were still issues with Oh look.
2: Uh, my so, my view is politicians, if there's a problem, and it's very worthwhile having legislation to introduce legislation, but then nobody polices it and things carry on. The same you ever noticed that? And especially in, in where, if there's no control in a widespread industry, well, of course you're going to get people just ignoring it, right? But let me say this, if I may, uh, of, of all the people, uh, Pat Preston, is just an enormous. He's done so much enormous work for the building industry. You could never measure it. Absolutely wonderful, and part of his success, Ralph, in my opinion, was that. He never mixed industrial matters with safety. He was the oracle. He knew all about safety. And he, when, he, he, when he came in, he dealt with safety. And then he'd say, now, I'm not dealing with industrial stuff. That's this man's job. And he became, well, an absolute authority, didn't he? Yeah, yeah great job. What a contribution he made.
1: So just to bring this part of the uh, conversation to some conclusion, from the 50s, late 50s, probably first big high-rise building was the ICI building, number one Nicholson Street. From there through to 1990, uh, the amount of asbestos that was being added to... uh, The buildings of Victoria, and particularly Melbourne, was unbelievable, and from basically 1990 on, we've been trying to get rid of it. Uh, Do you think we've had some success, or do you think we're still going to be living with a problem in the industry for a long time yet, as the renos take places, demolition takes place and so on?
2: Well... I think we made some progress, absolutely, but I was taken by the fact that, because I was living in Abbotsford at the time, and they were doing the punt road, or Hoddle Street, and they found a bit of asbestos pipe along the way and they quite rightly dealt with it in accordance with the rules and got rid of it. But if you ever take a train trip along north, parallel with Punt Road, you will see so many buildings that are covered in Super 6. Mm. And to me, that, because Super 6, you say, oh, well, it's fixed in the, up there, it's not going to cause it. Well, yes, it is. And now we're talking a, a, about a fibre getting into your lung that's about one millimetre or a half of that. It's, you can't see it. It's that small that gives you loose meso or whatever, and it moves with the wind and it rubs against it, and there are microscopic fibres being released. And to me, I would have thought that by this time there would be absolutely no asbestos in the community whatsoever, and it's not. So in those circumstances, it's easy doing things on the big jobs. You know that. Mm. But when you get down here, you struggle because nobody is interested or you haven't got the
1: manpower, the opposition are uh, uh, not playing ball, all of those things. And it's cheap and easy to bring asbestos-based product into the country, like John Hollands did at the Royal Children's Hospital in Perth. Look, Bizarre.
2: Well, I don't know what that blog from Perth was doing, When they were pulling down the the Great Southern Stand, which had Super 6 on the roof, I stepped in and said, this is how you're going to do it, Mm. right? And they cut it, dropped it, and dealt with it the way you would in in a building. Now, I was standing on the bridge at uh, the station, the rail station... And this chap idled up. Oh, you're talking. He said, I'm the president or the chairman of the Western Australian Asbestos Association. I've come over here to check that you're doing this right. Well, I said, I've got news for you, mate. You can fuck off. <laughs> because no one's doing anything different than unless I approve of it. Right? And there was a brother called Thompson, had a big... He had a big mobile crane. Do you remember that? It was huge. I never saw it again in Melbourne. That came in. They cut the roof into sections. He lifted it down and bang, they got, the, got in to do it on the ground. And we hope no one got affected. We're pretty sure we had it all covered. So I don't know about the blocks in Western Australia. If it's anything like that block. <laughs> and I don't normally use... Uh, Dixon-type
1: expletives. (laughs) Now, moving on from asbestos to your career in the industry, you worked at Trades Hall for a long time, then you went off into uh, some industrial officer jobs. No, no, no. And then you ended up uh, working for... Solzer? No. What happened there, uh,
2: I left the tri- oh, left the Trades Hall to become... Uh, oh, the words are escaping me now. The old memory's gone, mate. I was uh, on the disputes board... Yep. ..with my girlfriend, Betty Dottley. <laughs> and Peter... Peter Knight. Peter Knight, yes, from the NBA. For the best part of time. But what night was the the peacemaker, what do they call them? The word won't come. Uh, There was two of us used to go
1: around the sites. Yes. I remember you coming to a certain site. A bit bit notorious at the time. Um, I remember it well
2: and I I nearly passed by it today. Ferry Street. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we we would uh we'd visit the sites to make the peace. But we we were we didn't interfere too much. We just uh, encouragement is what we offered most people. And if it wasn't settled it went to the board. Yeah. Uh, but we spent a lot of time out in the suburbs where the cowboys were. We were the sheriffs riding in, and we didn't get a very good reception out there, but we said, well, this is what we offered advice. There's two ways of doing everything, the easy way and the hard way. But then I uh, became the uh, chairman of the Building and Construction Industry Council, which, in the end, I thought was... was came out worked fairly well. Uh, then... I, I needed to. um, I was on the disputes board then, and I was getting old. So I thought I needed a change, and I needed to put some money away for retirement, because I hadn't any money, Ralph. And I went to the union secretaries and I asked them, "What would they think if I replaced Bob Hayard?" At Grollo, they all said, "Well, we wish you well, Nick. You've, you know, you've been all right." I know, and I know what jumping the fence means. Mm. I shouldn't have done it, and especially when I got to Grollo. Instead of me being able to influence them, they they were absolutely atrocious in terms of uh, their treatment of. Uh, one old-time builder who'd worked for 30 years, uh, he ha- he used to take a Uton. He'd been doing it for... And then one day they take it off him. And I said, what? You're not serious, are you? So they did things. And my... I'm not in the top position. I'm only just a lackey here. So... And I was... I was a bit rebellious. There was one of the girls, I rang him because he'd been spreading uh, the incorrect information about me, one of the the girls. One of the family. And I said, now I want to explain to you, I want you to listen to me because what you've been told is wrong and has nothing to do with the situation. And anyway, he carried on and I said, well, listen, I said, I have never, ever hung up telephone on anyone in my life but that's always the first time I said I asked you to listen to me right and you have not listened to one word I've told you so I'm hanging up now and I thought well that's it exit no not a word said but I knew then that I'd made a fatal mistake and I'd gone and then in the meantime I got a, a call from Lance Sleeman whom, by the way, I regarded very highly in terms of his uh, commitment to decency and fairness. And I could tell you a few things that Lance did that very few other people would ever do. And I end up at Abbey Group. Which used to be called Salter. That was Salter and the Older. That's right, yeah, that's right. And I was only there for a couple of years, I thought, and I was there for 12 years. Like my brother Thomas before me, so but I I had the idea that I can understand it's like not quite like Buddy Franklin going to Sydney, <laughs> but changing size is not always the most appropriate thing, right? But you see, I never had really any real ambition. I I never actually applied for a job from the time. I left Salt when I went to Lomsdale Street. Mm. People said, you've you, uh, put your name down for this, elected to that. Right? Mm. I was always asked to do these jobs. And I, despite that, I've felt that I made a reasonable contribution, right? Mm. But never, ever felt that, uh, in any way that I was a heavyweight. But little things... Put together can be quite, uh, you know, helpful and forceful.
1: Well, the thing is, Nick, on this show, it's about creatures of the industry. As the late, great John Cummins would say, good bloke, bad bloke, they're in the industry for life, they are creatures of the industry. So, you have uh, gone the full gambit. Well, yeah, every other
2: <laughs> aspect of my work was t- related to the yeah. industry. Yeah.
1: And then I became a safety
2: officer, which was quite, I thought, was wonderful because uh, I'd always put such emphasis Oh, and the re- one of the reasons before we go, if we're
1: going... No, we're not going. We're just reflecting uh, on the fact that you've had a very long and quite remarkable transformation over all that time. Well, what, one of the things, I was on a job, I can't
2: remember the job exactly, and a blog came on, this was very early days, called Terry O'Connor. The one and only. Uh, a, a wild man from the mountains of Kerry. And he came on the job and, oh, muck be about here, there was a ladder that uh, they used to use timber ladders back in those old days. And they were legal. A bloody heavy to carry. But if the wrong snapped on you <laughs> halfway up, well, you uh, you were in trouble. And he saw this ladder and the <laughs> next thing I see he was make, making a beam for this ladder and he grabbed the ladder, he got a scaffold tube and he smashed it up and threw it in the, in the bin. And I... I was so impressed, i got to tell you. I thought, well, they're not going to use that letter the minute he turns his back and goes out the gate. And he was absolutely,
1: you know, he was just spot on when it
2: came to safety. He didn't muck about.
1: Well, Terry, in fact, is uh, fondly remembered by a lot of people because yeah. he was an absolute demon... In terms of safety, amenities, all the stuff, and if it wasn't right, you went home for twenty-four hours. And
2: if, and, and anything that wasn't suitable that you thought you might use when he'd gone, he fixed it before he left. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, I got into a similar situation in Bendigo, where I was, I was, uh, I was uh, not highly regarded. Yep. But I was on a job with a, a colleague from the other union and I didn't have too many members in Bendigo. They were, it was hard going up there. Uh, but the foreman came along and there was a ladder similar to the one that Terry had done. It came to mind. And I said to him, I want you to get rid of that ladder now. And my... My uh, person with me said nothing and a chap on the deck whom I later found out was uh, the steward. And he said, you won't touch that ladder unless I tell you. And oh, I thought, I meant to, what am I going to do here? So I, t- I turned to the foreman and I said, you will touch the ladder, right? And... Um, I said, you will take it, and I said, now I want you to break it up and put it in the bin. And if you don't, I said, I'm going back to Melbourne and every one of your jobs in Melbourne will be stopped, right? And your top man, the Dutchman, he was, he was all right in some ways for a, for a, a top man, I said, he's not going to be too happy that you allowed someone else to run the job. You're running this job, not him. He got the scaffold tube, he smashed the
1: ladder and put it in the bin. So, Terry,
2: thank you very much.
1: So, in terms of your time as the safety officer for Abbey Group, you would have done a fair few jobs. Uh, Abbey Group were quite successful at one stage till they basically got taken over by what became... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Balderstones. No, it was um, the Sydney mob. Yeah, but... Oh, they, got to, they were yeah, yeah.
2: No, the, they were after the civil side. Yeah. They weren't interested in the building. That was really the end of it. Uh, and neither were civil and civic. They had their own. Oh, look, they were a good company. There were some good people there. Uh, as I said, i have a very... I, I regarded Lance Lehman as one of the fine blocks in the industry that I'd met. They did a lot of good things. And uh, they brought... Once they put a civil man in charge of the company as a state manager, a very talented and decent man, do not get me
1: wrong, but he was civil. Yeah, who was
2: that? Uh,
1: Watson. Rod Watson, yes, ex-John Hollands.
2: I, remember, I yeah. remember you explaining something to me on a whiteboard one day. No, Watson was a capable man and yes. that, but he was civil and he, the building industry was... Not his number one. So, and at the time there was a lot of civil wars going on. Huge jobs. So, oh no, uh, and Tom had been there before him, before me, and he was, he didn't have a history of safety as such, but he knew when things weren't right. And when he got the job for us at Costains, and... He wasn't very happy with the way that things were, that he wasn't being listened to, and he had his own way of doing things, Tom, as I mentioned before. So he called everyone on site to a meeting. Everybody, management, the workers, all that, and he explains in, in more words than I'm going to say that he was in charge of safety, and if he said that something had to be done, it had to be done his way. And if anyone didn't like that, there was no lock on the gate. See you later. Mm. And then he said, right, you can go back to work now. And it worked. Mm. Said so, you know, he was, stop that, don't do that, that was shit. And uh, he didn't like being uh, ignored, my brother.
1: Now, so you've moved in to a job.
2: Yeah.
1: Which basically matched up very much with your interests in, uh, in the industry over a long term, whether it's be asbestos, with safety, all these things were part of how you'd grown up from the, from the rugged days of the uh, Snowy Mountain scheme all the way through. At the point where you finished as the safety officer for Abbey Group, Where do you think the industry was at that point? What year was it and where do you think the industry was in terms of safety in particular but just generally where the industry was? When I started at Abbey. No, when you finished at Abbey. When I finished at Abbey,
2: well, it was far more difficult. Yeah. So what year was that? Uh, That was... I don't have to be too precise but... When was that? I started in uh, two thousand and one, so it was about two thousand and thirteen. Yep. And we we were confronted by uh, we were confronted by the the ABCC. Uh, I mean, the ABC just shows you how foolish they are, and and the government that introduced them. We we had some very good, dedicated stewards when it came to our health and safety, and we knew that what they said was legit and it had to be done. So you you create uh, a mental a, a mindset where okay yeah, but we are not in opposition to these people, we're working together, right? And because Watson accused me of bailing to the and Safety Delegates. I said, what are you talking about? I said, I'm on the Safety Committee along with them. I'm on I said, we've worked together, mate, to make sure that this company is protected from a huge uh, 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 litigation And workers don't die on the job. That's what we do. You sit up here, uh, you know, creating things in your own mind that don't exist. So just understand, we've got good people working for this company and when they say we've got to fix something, we fix it. That's what we do. We work together. And, of course, then the next thing you know, we've got a stoppage down at Port Port. Uh, down at Fisherman's Bend. And they've got, we've got the ABCC swarming over us. Government job. The blogs left the job. Right? And... Uh, so which job
1: was that? Hmm? Which job was this that?
2: This was... It uh, was a Commonwealth...
1: CSIRO, job. wasn't it? CSIRO. Yeah.
2: And... So I get... Actually, I'm on the scene straight away... Yeah, okay, the boys have gone home, that's all right. Now, what we do here is that we, we've we got the issue and that we, we say we sent the blocks home, not the union. Right? We can't do that. We're going to do that, right? To save any aggro on our job, we're going to send the blocks home. Well, we're going to tell the stewards that that's our and don't upset us because if we don't we're going to get prosecuted hmm. that's it I'm trying to pre- pre- the issue's not, not how. they've gone home the issue's fixed they get paid and everyone goes back to work well didn't they give us a go on, over on that no. and I said just you tell them that it was our decision and then they can't do anything about it we're running this job it's our job not them
0: Uh, Similarly, they'd come on and say, you've got to
2: take down those uh, CFMEU posters. OK. And we're never going to put them back up again. Simple. Mm. Take the flag down. Well, it's not, we're not taking the flag down. uh, That's an issue much bigger than, you know, Mm. uh, one little job in the suburbs. We had, what they did, Ralph, was where you had people coming on the job and the union-initiated uh, benefits that were introduced were checked by the union, super, long service leave, the whole bit, right? Can you, We checked the blocks coming on, all covered. This... These regulations say you can't do that anymore. You are not to... That's private. L- allow the union to do it. You've got to do that. That's your job. So they said, what are we going to do? I said, we're going to have to put a couple of people on the payroll to check everyone before they come on the job. And so the people coming on the job, now they're not talking to the union, they're talking to... to Quietly spoken, clacks. Mm. They don't use that term anymore. But. So, and they slip by. And the next thing you know, we were in trouble because people are saying, you're letting people know we're not. So what we did was we continued to do what we always did and let the delegates on site check things. Mm. And we'll cop it sweet if we get hauled up. But that way, we're shaving money, which, but that wasn't the main thing. The main thing was that we've got blogs coming on the job and they're getting checked. And what was the man down at Mornington? They tried to get him. He was a steward. Oh, it'll come to me. He was uh, a real decent blog and he, he actually didn't do the checking. A body hire company came on, Troubleshooters, who loved me, and they they didn't come on. They engaged the company down that way who employed all Troubleshooters. Yeah. And we got a call from Canberra, from the Prime Minister's office, to say to get rid of the steward and allow this company to continue working. And what happened then was the company stood up, Abbey Group. Mm. The construction manager that was running parallel with Lance Sleeman at the time said, hey, hang on a minute, you can tell the Prime Minister or whoever else, right, that we're running this job and if any contractor comes on this job and does not comply with the contract that they've signed, which they haven't, then they're not working on this site or any of our sites. Mm. And you know, strangely enough, someone said we'd better check the contract because it said you've got to comply with this, this, this and this, Mm. right, over and above. Anyway, that was uh, talk about making things difficult. I had to tell all our office, our site staff, if Someone comes on from the union, you have to say, uh, can I have a look at your thing, paper, paperwork? Uh, Do you know you're not allowed to come on site? You what know, are the regulations? And then say, would you like a cup of coffee? <laughs> Just let them know that you are doing your job according to the regulations. And if they say, well, no, we're going on site, don't worry about it right? Don't engage. They're only doing their job. So, uh, we'll deal with it. If, it. if it becomes an issue, we'll deal with it. And that worked all right. People, people just came along and said, we're going on site. Well, we're going on site, who cares? Well,
1: that whole period I would have thought was difficult for everybody. But after 2013, it probably got even worse. Oh, yeah, well. Up, to, up till the time the uh, then Morrison government was booted out, it was um, full on. it. The, the amount of prosecutions, particularly of the union, and individuals, uh, members of the union, delegates and so on, was just so overbought it was ridiculous. And yet, however much uh, bosses and that whinge... They're not making enough money. There was plenty of money getting made. Uh, There's been a boom in this state, in this city in particular, for probably 20 years. Oh, absolutely, yeah. People people in the industry didn't know what unemployment was. Yeah.
2: Um, But, of course, part of the problem worldwide is that uh, you've got to have an impoverished workforce. That's where you make real money, right? I mean, America was built on slaves. Uh, you've got the building industry in, in England. You line up on the corner in the morning, and some bloke comes along in a truck and says, "You, you, you, and you." And the next day you line up, you're not guaranteed a job the next day. It could be, and they, that I want to make you feel comfortable to pick someone else. It, it the whole idea of employment is about um, exploiting a resource. That's all. And it's never been any different, Ralph, to quite frank. Well,
1: except for one thing. What? That is, if you've got a unionised workforce, it's a whole lot different. Well, you
2: see, this is it. When you talk about the industry... Well, the top end of the industry is what I call... Yeah, tier ones. Yeah, so at the top end, uh, you, you've got the best rates for workers in the country. <clears throat> uh, whether it's good enough yet, you've got the best health and safety uh, goals. Uh, you've got... I mean, I remember sitting in a shed once at the suburbs... And the builder came in and asked us to move because the water coming to the was getting on these con- bags of concrete. And he had a bit of plywood board uh, sitting on two boxes. That was <laughs> and there was a, one job where they had dry toilets. Yep. And people were advised, before they went in to throw a brick, so that the flies would get out of the way <laughs> and you could slip in. <laughs> no, I mean, it was primitive, yeah, really. Yeah. I, mean, I must say they weren't top-end jobs, but that was the sort of attitude that anything is good enough. And, you know, you've got, you come from a home that's got a nice, clean, hygienic uh, set-up right through. Unbelievable, really. And the thing about it is that for one reason or another... People are not able to speak up. I mean, you have a look at this industry. There were a lot of people who would have loved to have told the boss where to go, but if they did they'd lost their job, they have got a mortgage. What do you do? I've, I've, I've heard that many times, yeah. that if I, if I stand the way I would like to and I get the sack, I'm in trouble. And then if you really serve it up, the word goes out. Don't employ this blog. Oh, dear.
1: But Now, we're probably getting towards the end of the time that's available. We'll try and do about two hours, and then there can be part one and part two if necessary. But uh, this is a chance now just to reflect back on all your time in the industry and the fact that uh, you've been out of the industry for... A few years now, doesn't mean you haven't been uh, keeping your eye on things and also getting a chance to reflect on what do you think the highlights of your time in the industry have been, some of the people that you've met that stand out, some of the issues that have been absolutely, absolutely crucial, how... How has the industry ended up? What's been good? What's been bad? What's probably been a, uh, a draw? What, what do you think, it, looking back now, is some just some things that you have come to your mind?
2: Well, I, I, before we get to that, if you don't mind, I, yep. I, I also uh, appeared in the commission many times on matters, right? And there were two instances that one in the state and one in the federal. But when they introduced the accord, uh, I was summoned to the commission because I'd struck a deal out at the MCG with John Little, the secretary. Mm. Right? Now, a very pleasant man too, I might add. Uh, I was taken by a government uh, person, not a not a politician, uh, industrial person to meet John Little and it was at the, the time...
1: Secretary of the uh, MCG.
2: Yeah, I'm sorry, yeah, I should, uh, I, I'm assuming everyone knows who John Little is, but I, they wanted an agreement to build the museum. museum and the boxes and all of that to get it ready for the first uh, World Cup one day cricket. And we had a chat and a walk around. And then I said to the government, man, now, I said, if you kindly leave, and I'll, John we'll, and I will work this out. And he said, what? I said, listen, mate, when we finish here, the government don't want to know anything about this agreement. <laughs> so, and I walked up straight away. There had been a huge blue on all of the lights. Yes. And with that in mind, I was aware of the uh, conditions and rates for the lights. And I said to John Little, if you want to build these things, you've got to have to equal and exceed that. Right? Because there's one man that won't be too happy about complying to some, and won't do it to some... A Weaker deal. And you know who I'm talking about Norman Leslie. Norman Leslie. So I said, that's what I drew up this agreement. He said, you draw it up. I put added on everything on the other one. I bumped it up. If you worked on the job, you got one week severance pay or something like that. It was outrageous. And the site allowance was $2. Now, the site allowance at the time was 60 cents or something, the average site allowance, $2. And anyway, he signed it. He said he was happy to do it. That was that was what had to be done. Anyway, the next thing I know, I'm I'm summoned to the arbitration commission, and there was every bloody it was packed out. All the employer groups, anyone that had an interest in this industry, or in industrial relations generally, you breached the accord. <laughs> and I copied your. It went on for hours, bloody berating me. And in the end, there was a blog from Western Australia. It was the commissioner? He said, "Yes, Mr. Moore." And I stood up. I've been really enjoying this, mate. And I said, "Well, if it pleases the commission," I said, "It's clear to me Definitely. that I am the only person in this room." that has done any research whatsoever into the origins of the agreement that was reached for the Olympic Games in 1956. And just for a start, I said there was an allowance, because they were more worried about the allowance. I said there was an allowance issued on this agreement in '54 to all the workers working on the Olympic stands and what have you, I said, for five shillings and fourpence. Now, I said, if you roughly extrapolate that by 10% for each year since, it works out at exactly $2.00, exactly. <laughs> right? And so that should not be an issue. It's just parity with what they had when they built the uh, Olympic stands. And then I said... At the completion of the job, the job stewards on this job were awarded the, uh, what is it, the MBE, member of the British Empire. Right, they were. Now, I said, on this occasion, Mr Commissioner, we are more than happy to just accept the money and leave the Imperial Awards alone. And he started laughing. (laughs) And the whole place... Ended up in they all started chaos. Yeah. Don't care what they did, and then that was so. I reckon that was a great achievement, answering the critics. What yeah. the the agreement was, what it is. It, it was an outrageous agreement, and then Jack Eggington in the steak industry. I got the job of heading an appeal, which I'd never done in my life. I'm a carpenter, not a bloody lawyer, and. Heading an appeal for the Slaters and Tyler's over uh, cutting tiles. Yep. And they weren't happy with the sum of money because there was a bit of work involved. So we're now in front of a full bench of the State Commission. And I got up and there was the show, uh, um, Hamilton Berger on the telly, I can't think of the show now. And I watched him making an appeal once, so I copied that. <laughs> I set out what I was going to do and say, anyway, I, I was, I was on, and Jack Egerton asked me a question. I had absolutely no idea what he was talking about. And I, so I said to him, Jack, or well, Mr, Mr. Commissioner, I said, it would be more than presumptuous of me to form any opinion at this early stage in proceedings Something like that, uh, in relation to the matter that you, uh, you uh, question. Rather, I would like to uh, rely on the good judgment of, of the full bench. Jack sat there and grinned. Right? Because Jack loved being told how good he was. Yeah. <laughs> and I sat down and I thought, well, I, that worked. And I still don't know what the question was. So there were two great achievements of mine in the industrial side... In the industry, since I joined the industry, I'd have to say that without a doubt the asbestos question, the Oc Health and Safety Act in 1985, it may not have been perfect, but you always have to start somewhere. Yep. And if you reject... uh, weakened substitute, it may eventually be to your detriment. It's always easier to get in the door with a foot in it than it is to have it locked tight. So you get in the door first and then you've got an ability to use that small pair and make it greater.
1: It's all the art of the possible.
2: Well, I think it's quite sad for people... uh, my principle – if you have a look at the uh, situation that Indigenous people in Australia found themselves in, it, the methodology is uh, almost exactly the same as the British did in Ireland. They came in, kicked us off our land, right, Took it, gave it away to others, uh, uh, treated us like animals because we didn't speak English and we weren't as refined, but we had a culture far greater than theirs, still have. And when my sister said she was going to vote no, I said you're not serious. Compare the two, hmm. and it wasn't just Ireland; they did it everywhere around the world. They took our language off us, right? They took our homes, customs. Isn't it just exactly the same? And. I, just ca- I don't know what all the fuss is about. Some people think that Indigenous people are going to rise up and kick us back out. A bit late for that. I mean, it's just folly, some of the things that they're saying. Anyway, get your foot in the door and you can build on that. So I, I there are some disappointments in regards to that. I, I was always disappointed... When I had to stand against, uh, even though it didn't affect your relationship really, but to, to fight over a demarcation, oh, I didn't like that. I knew it was a, a real thing and, uh, you know, I remember Boyd, he tried to stop me getting in the commission one day over, and the, the, the judge says, what's this about? And I said, Boyd, he's demarcating, he's trying to pinch my members, mm. Right? Yeah, Brian and I have always been good friends, and that didn't affect it. In fact, we laugh at it now. I said, "You tried to, to block me getting into the commission," but I always like to be um, not at odds with the people I worked with, because you could achieve a lot more, of course. So I think uh, I'm not. I'm not sure about amalgamation,
0: mm-hmm.
2: I I feel there was a lot of value in... The, it should have been dealt differently, I think, because I feel that now there are places where there used to be union membership and because of the breadth and size of the CFMEU... They don't put the same forces in. I used to visit basements in the city looking for maintenance carpenters. I stopped a bloke in the street one day because he had overalls and a, pen, a rule and pencil. I said, are you chippy? He said, yeah. I said, where do you work? He said, I work at the Metropolitan Board, Tramways Board. I said, do you remember the union? He said, yeah. BW, oh, I said, I said, I'm the organiser for your area. He took me down. I never knew it was there. He took me down there. There was 14 of them. Yep. And that seems to me get lost because it's much... You know, the, the, the minnows don't always uh, uh, benefit from that. But... Uh, so that's one area that I think perhaps might have been better controlled.
1: So some earlier comments you made about... Uh, Union penetration down to the small jobs in the suburbs. So that's what we're talking about,
2: yeah? Well, it's it's rough going. You've got to be a tough character. I mean, I was in Castlemaine once and I was on a, a, a bigger a government job, but uh, it was the hospital mm. and it was after Christmas. The members, who weren't my members, said... The boss knocked us off a day before the breakup day. Mm. I said, well, that was good, because they came from Sydney. He said, yeah, but they didn't pay us. Mm. So I said to this bloke from Sydney, he was a rather large European, mm. and I said, well, you, you know you've got to pay him the day. He said, no, I don't pay. Well, I said, you do? No. Oh, well, I said, don't worry about it, I said, I'll fix it my way. I said, I'll tell Tom Bassani to pay and uh, he'll deduct it from your money. So with that, he took a bit of 4B2 up, and his son, who was bigger than him, well, I could run in those days. I made it to the ladder, got down like a fireman, (laughs) got hit on the elbow going down, and then on the helmet, right? Made it to the office, and I said to the foreman, get me Tom Bassani on the phone. What's up? I said, I've just been attacked on this job here, so I said, I want you to tell this man that he's no longer welcome on the job, for a stab, that he, you are tearing up his contract and you will employ the workers directly, right, and I'll, I'll leave it there. But if there's any aggro, I'll take it a lot further, for salt and all sorts of... That. He did. He said, he said put the bloke on the phone, told him to get back to Sydney... And so that was that wasn't very pleasant, mm. right? Because uh, I'm not sure I'm a i am I was a great lover either, Ralph. But I certainly wasn't a fighter. Yeah. <laughs> I, oh no! It you got to have a bit of, you got to take a deep breath and say I'm not running away from this lot. Mm.
1: If you do, you're dead
2: in the water. Yeah. So, but and the other thing, of course, totally do, it's so hard to organise and. Track blocks who are peace workers mm. under the heading of subcontractors. Yeah. I mean, you're on a hiding to nothing, really. I, I, Les Groves used to talk to me about, uh, you know, three-up villas. Yep. And I'd say, well, they're doing the work. It's the work they're doing. Yep. Nothing to do with the height of the building. all oh, Max Beck came to me one day and said... This is when I was at the Trades Hall, he said, well, we're building over a jolly month. But he said, I don't have to worry about a site agreement because I used to handle the site agreements. I said, why not? He said, it's housing. I said, it's steel decks, columns and rear and cranes. I said, what's different to that, to what you're doing down in Flinders? Oh, yeah, but it's housing. Come on, Max. (laughs) I <laughs> said, "You're smarter than that." So he, he gave in. He said, oh, "Okay, well." Do. But see, that's what housing is considered to be a different thing. Well, and it is, right? But you go on a housing. Uh, what's his name? George Jackson was the only one that had a unionized uh, workforce on the housing in the Tile laying. Yeah. And once he went, it went. So it's. And when you when you go on to a housing project, or when you did, that's where you saw the, the dry toilets. Yes. And I mean, you wouldn't see that in a third world country. They'd have something better. They have actually, they do. They have a, <coughs> a can of water there that you put on your hand and you wash the backside when you finish. And <laughs> we didn't even have that. So you've got a big job there and it can't, I don't know if you can do it with industrial action. It has to be legislation
1: with policing. Yeah. Righto. Anything, other, any other highlights do you think need to get mentioned? Because we're Oh, look,
2: I've, I have written stuff.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, but it's mainly anecdotes. Hmm. Uh, there's a blog, I won't mention his name either because it could be. So I get called to a job on Thursday night down at the Underground Railway, the booking office at uh, the Elizabeth Street end of uh, Central there now, uh, Melbourne Central. And the blog said, they said, we haven't been paid. What? Thursday night? Haven't been paid. Next thing, this blog bobs up, a dandy uh, Well, we can say he's an Italian... And I said, why haven't you paid the blogs? He said, I have no money. But I will have money in the morning. I said, where's the money coming from? He said, big porker game tonight, porker. <laughs> so I said, what? Okay. Well, I said, I'm gonna be here in the morning. Because this was after hours now, the blogs are waiting for their money. And it, and if you haven't got the money, I'm going into John so I'm going to say under our agreements and everything else, you will pay the money, right, to these box their wages. I get there at about six in the morning and he's there. And I'm not joking you, Ralph, he's got the biggest handful of money I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> he said, i very lucky last <laughs> night. <laughs> so I said, well, I'm not going to, I've got it get Hollands to check that these blocks have been paid the, the right amount and you'd better go to another polka game before next Thursday. So it's a funny game, the billing
1: industry. That's right. It is indeed a funny game and we should probably end it on that uh, high note.
2: Well, there's some humorous.
1: That's right. There is humorous. indeed and maybe that's one of the things we don't have in the industry as much as we used to have and that was the laugh. We used to that's right. We used to have a laugh and we used to muck around and all the rest of it. We probably weren't as productive as we uh, are now today, when you have uh, everything uh, organised to the nth degree to the last cent. Unfortunately, that's a change we're not probably going to see. Well, do you remember when if you took your kids into a pub, you could get a
2: raspberry for you?
1: <laughs> I can remember the days when you used to pay twenty cents for a pot. But anyway, never mind. <laughs> old, know. <laughs> <laughs> not quite as old as you, but certainly getting oh, there. Anyway, Nick Moore, thank you very much for your uh, contribution today to Creatures of the Industry, and uh, it is a uh, show that I think has uh, basically captured a whole lot of stuff that people don't know, probably never heard of but for someone who's had the uh, time in the industry from the 50s right through to the uh, 2000s, thank you very much indeed and I'm hoping that uh, people will enjoy this program in due course. You have been listening to Creatures of the Industry, an ongoing series of oral history interviews about the building and construction industry in Melbourne and regional Victoria. Victoria Since the 1960s.
0: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au And whether we were born here or born in Italy